Let me invite you to go to Romans chapter 6, please. Romans chapter 6 this morning. I think one of the skillful ways in which the Apostle Paul communicated was to anticipate objections or arguments. He uh, he carried on uh, what was actually like a one-way kind of communication uh, with a kind of two-way interaction. He would make statements and then anticipate uh, objections or misunderstandings, then he would correct those and bring them back in. And and one of the uh, blessings of that, I think, is it, it enables us to see how God's Word opens up and presses home the truth of the gospel, right? Because it's not just enough to go, I think, against those things that would be diametrically opposed to the gospel. That certainly needs to be done. There needs to be that direct counter of the opposite, But there also needs to be a diligence to correct deflections from the gospel. Because those sometimes are more dangerous, right? Someone shows up and argues the 180 degree different position, you can recognize that. It's when someone takes and turns it slightly so that you start to go down a different pathway that ultimately leads you to a wrong conclusion. That's where danger is. And and so Paul is very careful at times to make certain he cuts off not just the opposite, but actually any kind of substitute, any kind of addition to the gospel or subtraction from the gospel. He, He tries to cut it off right at the head of the trail so that we don't find ourselves arriving at conclusions which actually end up contradicting the gospel completely. And that's a part of what he's been doing here in chapter 6. And when he finishes chapter 5 and says, you know, sin reigned in death, but grace will reign in righteousness unto eternal life, and, and that the grace actually superabounded in the face of increasing sin... Someone might go, well, if that's the way it works, if sin increases, grace super increases, then maybe we should go on sinning. And Paul says, absolutely not. May it never be. And one of the issues that comes up in it is he keeps saying that we're not under the law. And so here's where a deflection might come. Well, hey, we're not under the law, so then sin must be okay. Right? Because law and sin are so tied together, if you eliminate the law, then you're going to have an overwhelming avalanche of sin. Because deep in the human heart, at times, because of our tendency toward uh, a genuine, biblically defined legalism, the desire to prove ourselves right by keeping the law. Right? I'm not talking about the kind of populist definitions of legalism that we tend to have where anybody that has standards is a legalist. Talking about the biblical kind, the kind that says, I will be right with God by my law-keeping. Those kinds of people, when they hear we're not under the law, think then everything's going to go crazy. Right? We, if we don't have the law, how will we ever restrain sin? 
if we're not under the law, then should we sin? Right? That question always comes up when you're wrestling with justification on the basis of grace and faith versus works. Right? It, it always starts to come up. It comes up in the book of Galatians. It comes up here. And Paul's answer in both places is what we need to hear. The answer is not, in fact, found in the law, but is found in God's grace and what it powerfully accomplishes. Look at beginning verse 15 of chapter 6, because you can see he introduces and sort of turns the corner with another question that runs somewhat parallel to the one in verse 1. Look at verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Okay, just so, just so you can see the parallel, look back to 6.1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. All right, so in 1 and 15, he basically sets up two questions that are addressing a potential objection. Objection number one is, well, if sin causes grace to increase, should we continue in sin? May it never be. Well, if we're not under the law, but under grace, should we sin? May it never be. Right? The right response to grace is not sin. Which may seem obvious to us in terms of up here. But there are multitudes of examples throughout church history where actually people have adopted stances which are described as libertine or licentiousness that actually have said, hey, we're free from the law, so don't be laying any commands on me. Don't be telling me how I should live my life. I can live any way I want, and in fact, that's what grace allows us to do. In fact, years ago now, uh, I mean, who radio teacher who says a lot of good things at times, but but went down that path because this debate between legalism as it's defined law, uh, Chuck Swindoll wrote a book called Grace Awakening, who basically said grace is like this. It's like being able to go into the cafe and you can eat whatever you want because of grace. And you may make some bad decisions, like you might decide to chew on gravel. And it's not going to do you any good, but that's sort of the way grace is. It, it just sort of opens up the cafe for you. That's ridiculous. But that is not what grace does. And that's Paul's point here. It's like, okay, should we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Don't think about grace as a free pass to sin. The right response to grace is not to sin. Okay, so look what he says here in the verses that follow. Picking up 15 again. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death, or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. 
I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Paul's going to add a second part to the answer to that question in verses 20 to 23, but I knew I would never get through all of that this morning. So we're going to look at verses 15 to 19 to see the first part of his answer, and that is why shouldn't we respond to grace with sin? Why not? And and he lays it out for us in in what I think is a, a pretty clear case he makes. The first of which starts with a principle and, and it's a principle regarding obedience in verse 16. And it's built on one powerful reality. You are a slave to something. Right? That's, that's his point in verse 16. Look at, he goes, you can, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death, are of obedience resulting in righteousness, right? There's The point is simple. There's no such thing as total autonomy in a fallen world. You know, autonomy means self-law or self-rule. And we love to pride ourselves. I mean, I'm, I'm an auto- autonomous creature. I, I'm in charge of myself. Nobody is over me. I rule my own world. And here, here's what Paul's saying is that's just not the way it works in a fallen world. You're either a slave of sin or you're a slave of righteousness. You're not in a neutral territory. You don't actually, you don't actually have some spot in between where you live and occasionally veer into slave of sin or into slave of righteousness. You are one or the other. All right? and, and, and I think that perhaps, at least for me, the easiest way to understand it is this. Right? God made this world, has rightful authority over it, and ever since the fall, it's been in rebellion. So unless you are under God's authority, you are actually under the authority of this fallen world. You are a slave of sin. Right? There's no, there's no middle ground. This world is no friend of grace to help us on to God, we sing occasionally. Right? So, so we need to recognize that. And that's the basic point that he's making here. Your life serves something. And if it is not God, it is sin. And that shouldn't shock us, right? Remember what Jesus said? You cannot serve two masters. You'll love the one, hate the other, right? Jesus was saying there's, there's, there's two masters. You can't serve them both, right? You're going to choose one over the other. John's very clear in 1 John chapter 2. You cannot love the world and love the Father, right? It's, it's a hard gap. It's a, it's a divide there. Your loyalty and allegiance and service cannot go in two directions at the same time. It doesn't work. 
So if you are not under the authority of God serving Him, you are serving something else, and that is opposed to God. Well, I'm serving myself, right? If you're serving yourself out from under God's authority, you're actually serving sin. It, we like to we like to try and like convince ourselves that we're in the middle zone of neutrality, and most of the time we're just sort of floating along, not actively choosing sin, perhaps not actively choosing God. But if we're not actively choosing against God, we're okay. And that's not the way it works. Your life must be surrendered to God or it is actually out of line with God. That's that's the truth, the reality that's in verse 16 that he's driving toward. And that results, there means there's two possible consequences. Notice in in the end of the verse, it says either... Right, you're, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. Right? So the, the, literally it's sin to death, obedience to righteousness or unto. And, and so what he's trying to show us is that there's two possible outcomes or consequences. You're you're either on the pathway that is leading to death or the pathway that is to righteousness. And that, that's reflected by the one whom you are serving. Sin leads to death. Obedience leads to righteousness. And, and the death, I think, here is eternal versus spiritual because the reason you'd be on that path is you're spiritually dead. And I don't think he's focusing on physical death here. He's talking about eternal consequences because of, look at the end of the chapter, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So so the contrast going on is between a death which has eternal significance connected to it versus a life which has eternal significance connected to it. So the path of sin is the path to eternal separation from God. If a person is dead spiritually, when they die physically, they will be separated from God eternally. That's that's the biblical uh, presentation of death. It's separation. Physical is separation of the spirit and body. Spiritual is the separation of the person from the life of God. Eternal death is the separation of the person, both spirit and body, for all of eternity. That's why there's a resurrection of the dead in the book of Revelation. Because their bodies are raised to be cast into eternal condemnation. It's the separation eternally of the person from God. And so Paul's saying, listen, you're going to serve someone... If you choose to serve sin, that pathway leads to eternal death. Right? If you're actually serving righteousness or serving obedience, it leads to righteousness. And that sort of leads, if I can put it this way, an imbalanced kind of parallel. I mean, and maybe this is just me. I love things to be when they're parallel. They're like 
perfectly parallel? Right? So you'd think it would go sin, and across from sin would be God. But Paul puts across from sin obedience. Right? And, and death, you would want life, but he puts righteousness. So he's not trying to pick a perfect parallel as much as he's trying to emphasize the starkness of the contrast. Right? Sin is anti-God and leads to death, but what we're actually putting ourselves are to be slaves of obedience, which has the result of righteousness. Because he's in the context of translating, if I could put it, their position into their practice. They are legally counted as righteous before God, but he wants them to understand it's not just a legal standing that matters It's actually a life that grows out of what God has done. That he actually wants them to be righteous, not just counted as righteous. And so he's he's addressing this issue of sin with them. And it probably harkens back a little bit to 521, which I alluded to. But look at 521 because this is where you see the, the contrast, I think, or the parallels he's working with. Verse 20, let's start there. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see the sin-death combo and then grace-righteousness to eternal life. So even there, you have a, a little bit of a, imbalance. There's three parts to the one side and two to the other because he's trying to make the point about what grace accomplishes in them. All right, so here's the first step of Paul's case. Why shouldn't you respond to grace with more sin? Because of the principle of obedience. The one you choose to obey, you are actually a slave to. And if you choose slavery to sin, the outcome of that is death. Right? So, so you, you, can't, you can't play that game without those consequences. Right? So that leads him to his second statement, which is actually about the power of conversion. Look at verses 17 and 18, because here's what he says in contrast to that possibility, I think. He says, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you were committed, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So in verse 18, he's saying, listen, you're going to serve somebody, and here's what you need to understand. Service to sin leads to death. Service to obedience leads to righteousness. So someone like, okay, so it's it's up to me to pick my path, pick my master, pick my path. And then he stops and goes, But thanks be to God, you were slaves of sin. Right? You were that. But instead of that, you became obedient from the heart, and verse 19, having been freed from sin. So he's saying, listen, don't you understand the reality that whom you obey is your master? And you have a different master, right? Why in the world would you think go on sinning that leads to death 
when in fact, look at what God's done for you. Look at what he's accomplished in you because of that. When I say in you, it's because of the, the, the fact that he's talking about their conversion. There's a radical change that takes place. Look at the language again. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart. Right? Something happened inside of them. When I say a radical change, what I mean by that is a root, core kind of change. Here's what you were. You were slaves of sin. But you became something very different. Right? You became obedient from the heart to the teaching to which you were committed. That something happened inside of them that radically changed them. They are not what they were. God has done something that has made them new creations in Christ. They are alive from the dead, as we've seen in this passage. God has done something in the heart which has produced obedience. Notice the language of the text. You became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And I think uh, the use of the word obedient here is talking about the result of this root change, this radical change in them. Instead of them uh, defying God's authority, living for self, God did a work in their heart that has produced obedience. They accepted the truth of God. They embraced the Lord of that truth. Right? I mean, this is, I think, the, uh, the, one of the most important things that we, we need to recognize because we're um, all through this passage. The, what Paul is saying is, is deeply contradictory to the kind of shallow gospel and shallow Christianity which dominates much of professing Christendom. Right? Cause, and, and I've used this illustration before, but I mean, a lot of Christianity, uh, I'm just going to use my glasses. Let's say this is the gift of salvation. It preaches a gospel in which Jesus purchased a gift for you. And, and if you want to not go to hell and you want to go to heaven, then here's what you need to do. You need to accept that gift sort of tuck it away in your pocket so one day when you die, you can pull it out and go, hey, look, I got the gift. I'm going to heaven. Or if anybody asks you, you they start to talk to you and say, hey, if you died today, where would you go? Oh, I'd go to heaven. Why is that? Well, because I I picked up the gift one day. Right? I, I prayed some prayer. I signed some gospel track. I walked some aisle. I I took the deal. Right? Because I took the deal, I'm going to get there. But, but the Bible does not present the gospel like that. Right? If you're going to think about it, you've got to think about this. If this is the gift of salvation, it comes wrapped in Jesus Christ. You don't accept a gift from Jesus and not Jesus. Right? You, you, you accept Christ Jesus as your Lord. Remember what John says? 
as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be called the children of God, even to those who believed in his name. All right, there's no, there's no, there's no separating the gifts or benefits of salvation from the Savior. Right? I don't just, I don't cut a deal with Jesus by which I get out of hell. I come to Jesus and I accept him as who he is. He's Lord in Christ. He is the Savior. I actually receive Christ. Right? That's what the Great Commission was. Go and make disciples. Right? Identifying with Christ through baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Right? The kind of shallow, easy believism that actually wants to make a, a wall between Jesus as Savior and Jesus as Lord somehow thinks it can just like take him and cut him in half. You don't, you don't get to piecemeal out Jesus. Hey, I want him to be my Savior, but you know, maybe if I want to later on, I'll make him my Lord. That's, that's not the Bible. Right? And, and that's the problem. When, when people want to come to a passage like this, it, they just almost have to muffle it entirely. Because they're scared to death of the response of someone to Christ being obedience from the heart. Right? They, they want to think obedience is not actually wrapped up in the response of faith. Whereas in chapter 1, verse 5, he calls it the obedience of faith. You hear the gospel, you believe the gospel. The gospel calls you to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you really believe the gospel, you bow the knee. That's why so often when people shallow it out, they toss repentance to the wind because what's, what is sin? It's rebellion against God. That's what this text is talking about, right? You're a slave of sin leading away from God or you're a slave of righteousness. You're a servant of something. And if sin is rebellion against God, then me repenting of sin is repenting of my rebellion. Also known as submission. Right? If I bow the knee to Jesus, I'm surrendering. I'm saying, I will not be Lord of my life. I confess you as my Lord. I acknowledge your right to claim my life because you shed your blood to purchase me. It's acknowledging that. It's obedience from the heart to the teaching that has come in the gospel. And, and we need to recognize that that's what conversion is. It's described that way again and again in the scriptures. And, and no amount of sophisticated uh, analogies and arguments and ways of trying to go, but I knew so-and-so, and boy, they seem saved, and then they live like this, so I don't know. 
right? You need to use the Bible to interpret your experience. Not your experience to interpret the Bible. Right? The Bible stands in authority over our experience, and we need to let it speak in the way it speaks. The, the conversion is powerful because it is a radical change at the heart. Notice there's a new standard for our lives that's put in place. He says, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And I think that this is framed this way in part because the question at in verse 15 was about the law, right? If we're not under the law, but under grace. And so Paul doesn't want them to draw a false conclusion. Hey, you're not under the law, so there's no authoritative expression of God's truth that should govern your life, right? I mean, that's a constant error as people go, we're not under the law, so we have no law. But again, the scriptures would, would not have us go there. Paul talks about being under the law of Christ, or not without law. James talked about being under the law of Christ, Right? It, it, the law wasn't just like a rag bag of commands. And so now we go, Hey, we're not under the law. So we're not under commands. It means we just sort of like, you know, we just sort of live in the spirit and figure out what we want to do when we want to do it as if God has not said anything to us about these things. Now God's given us his truth. He's told us what he requires of us as New Testament believers. The law here is the Mosaic law. I'm not under the Mosaic law, but I'm not without the rule of God over my life through his truth. Okay, and, and in fact, look at the way the language is in it, because it's really, it's, it's almost sort of odd, right? The form of teaching to which you were committed may sound like uh, you, he's talking about a past tense, well, you used to be committed to this, but you're not now. But that's not really what it is. You could actually have it like this, to which you were entrusted, to which you were handed over or delivered, right? The teaching here isn't what was entrusted or commanded. It was actually them. They had become obedient from the heart to the teaching to which they had been entrusted or to which they had been committed, right? There's a standard for them of God's truth, the teaching that's there, and in fact, when they came to Christ, it became the thing to which they were, they were committed or entrusted or handed over. The truth of God was to rule their lives. They're under this new rule that God has for them. They're not, they're not on their own, right? They're under the truth of God, which they had received and therefore had been entrusted to it. And the word that Paul uses, the form of teaching, uh, it's a pattern, an example. Uh, it's used sometimes as type, like we, we talk about types. But I think what Paul's doing here is, is it's, it's a pattern of teaching which is going to govern their lives in obedience that produces righteousness. Right? There's a form that's there. And you know, you, you make something, you pour it into a form, and that creates the shape of it. 
The teaching of God creates a pattern or form that molds the life to it. And that's what conversion is. It's, it's, I think, another way of saying what Jesus said in the Great Commission. Teach them to observe all that I commanded you. Here's the things. The things that I've commanded you become the form. Right? I, you know, jello keeps popping into my mind, right? You, you want to make, you got the mold and you pour the jello in and it forms it to it. The teaching of God is the form or the pattern into which our lives are being poured and the word is shaping them. Okay, that's, that's what's supposed to be happening. So, so there's this radical change according to a new standard. And it is a gracious work of God. That's what conversion is. And, and that's signaled to us in the text by the one to whom he gives thanks. Look at verse 17. But thanks be to God. And again, um, we shouldn't take Paul's words as like a throwaway. I mean, what Paul's actually helping us see here is that all of this happened because of the work of God. That's why he's giving thanks to God. You you actually were slaves to sin. You became obedient from the heart. Why did that happen? Thanks be to God. God is the one who effected this Radical change in you. Okay, that's implied in the phrase, thanks be to God, but it's made explicit in verse 18. Notice the words here, having been freed. Okay, so if you're caught in a trap, and I come along and I let you out of that trap, you would say, I freed you from it. Right? If you were caught in that trap and you got yourself out of it, you'd say, I freed myself. Right? I released myself. I had it. But this isn't the passive. You have been freed. Someone else freed you. It was God. That's why he says, thanks be to God. You were a slave of sin, verse 17. You were, in verse 18, uh, captured, if we could take it that way, having been freed from sin. So you were in bondage or you were captive to sin, but you have been freed. Paul sees this as the work of God and offers thanks. Uh, throughout these, these chapters, 5, 6, and 7, or 5, 6, 7, and 8, Paul uses the word freed to say freed from sin, verse 18 and 22 of chapter 6, free from the law, chapter 7, verse 3, and then free from death in chapter 8, verse 2. He's going to talk about the freedom that God has provided for us. So we've been freed from sin. We've been freed from the law. We've been freed from death. Okay, It's the work of God to accomplish this. And so it is a point about which God should be thanked. Now look at verse 19, because he moves to the third step of his case, and that is about the pursuit of sanctification. He starts, and, and he tips off his hand, if I could say it this way, 
that he's making an imperfect analogy, all right? It's not a complete analogy. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. What he's, what I think he's doing there is he's going, all right, I'm drawing an analogy between slavery, but it's not a perfect or complete analogy. That is, don't, don't do this. Don't go over and say, okay, so what was slavery like? And so whatever slavery is like, that's exactly what slavery to righteousness is. He's saying, no, I'm, I'm using an analogy, right? I'm speaking in human terms. I'm using something from human existence in order to draw an analogy, but, but be careful with that, right? And, and, and that's, um, that's a good word of warning to us, right? Because a lot of missteps theologically can happen when people make analogies walk on all fours, right? They, 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 they think, okay, hey, there's an analogy here, and then they, they actually step away from the, the issue of analogy, and they really sort of turn almost to, like, to allegory or, or some kind of overstatement of the case. And Paul's simply saying, listen, there's an analogy I'm drawing between slavery, right, what human slavery is like, and slavery to righteousness, and slavery actually to sin even. He's drawing that analogy. But it's not a complete and perfect one. I'm using this in terms of human terms, and it's because of part of our weakness of having to work through things often analogically, all right? So, so he wants us to understand that. Not, it's not an insult to them when he says, because of the weakness of your flesh, uh, he's simply saying, we need to think this way at times, but let's think this way carefully. All right, that's, that's what he's doing. Then he makes an important comparison about how their lives used to be to what they should be. And I call it comparison because look at, after he says the thing about the weakness of your flesh, he says, for just as you, and then he says, so now presenter. So he's, He's saying there was a way in which you lived when you were a slave of sin that you presented your members as slaves, right? In this case, he says, you presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, right? Here, life outside of Christ was lived in the service of impurity and lawlessness. You were pursuing things that God views as impure and contrary to his law. And you were taking your members. Remember, remember in the verses before this, we took members as like our natural capacities or abilities, right? The things that we are able to do, we were presenting them to the pursuit of impurity and lawlessness. We were living for ourselves and, and, and doing things that were short of the glory of God. All right, even, even good things done for selfish reasons are tainted by sin. But then when we use our, our gifts and abilities and devote ourselves to the pursuit of things which are marked by impurity and lawlessness, the way we gave, if I could put it this way, we gave ourselves fully to that, right? That that was in fact the full-scale pursuit of sin, 
to which sinners commit the members of their body, their, their, their abilities. Right? There's, there's a way in which we look at how the world and lost people, and we were like before we came to Christ, that we served ourselves completely and relentlessly. Even our supposed altruistic things often were done for some benefit that we would get for ourselves. We would do good for our reputation, make a name for ourselves, or we would do good to somebody because we hope to get good in return. I mean, you realize it's become so popular since people have set aside God to talk about karma and all that stuff, and, and essentially they're revealing the self-centeredness of their heart. I'm going to do this good because what goes around comes around. Right? I don't want to do bad because I don't want bad back. So good and bad are not based on moral values. They're based on utilitarian ones. I'm going to do this because I want good to come to me. Right? They're sold. They're sold to the pursuit of self-centeredness. The way in which that controlled the life of an unbeliever the same full-scale, dominant perspective of our life should be, we're actually presenting ourselves, our members, to serve righteousness. Right, Just like we were fully given to the pursuit of sin, we should be fully given to the pursuit of righteousness. It shouldn't be something we dabble in it shouldn't be something that we do if it fits our pre-commitments. It should be something that has full control of us. right? And, and if it has full control of us, there are going to be times at which you're going to be committed to doing the right thing even when you might not find the right thing to be in your immediate best interest. Right? You're going to do the hard right thing because it is the right thing. You're not going to treat the right thing as a tool to get what you want. You're going to treat the right thing as the right thing. Righteousness. God's standard controls my life rather than my own standard. Okay, And notice the contrast again because it's insightful here. Which way these go? For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Paul again goes back to pathways. The pathway over here that is serving impurity and lawlessness, you know what it produces? It produces more lawlessness. There is an inherent degrading and decaying pathway. Sin always takes us deeper and binds us tighter. Right? It might look like door number one is attractive and pleasant and happy. But behind door number one is death and destruction and defilement. 
right? That's, that's why at times, I mean, uh, it's probably easier for us to see this in other people than it is in ourselves, right? But we see somebody who maybe at one point was up here in the pathway, and now they're so far into the pathway that we're going, how can they ever think that that is actually good for them? I mean, how, how can they be so blind to, to the reality of what's happening in their lives? How can they not see what a mess this is making? It's because the pathway goes inch by inch in its blinding and binding power because lawlessness produces lawlessness. Right? I mean, it happens, I mean, we, we sometimes we can look at our society and think, how in the world are people with half a brain coming to this conclusion? I mean, see, I'm just going to pick random. How in the world can, can, can people with any ounce of common sense and moral awareness think, having a cross-dressing stripper perform in a public library for children is healthy at all. I mean, seriously, how do you get there? How, How did that happen in our culture? I mean, I'm 61. 61. Right, I, was, I was a kid in the 60s, and there was a lot of crazy stuff in the 60s. That would not have flown. How do we get there? Because lawlessness produces lawlessness. That's what Paul's saying. Okay, but you know it's easy? It's easy to do. It's easy to point at the, the culture in the society. But how many times... In our own personal lives, have we found ourselves significantly, significantly down the path from places that we used to think we would never go, and we're way past it? I mean, the stuff that believers will talk about watching, the stuff that believers will say, People who will justify immoral actions because of some perceived need for my my self-worth, my own happiness. Abandoning a covenant which is supposed to be from, from life to death. Setting it aside because it's just too hard. Right? Where do we get there personally? We get there personally when we choose to present ourselves to things which enslave us. And everything does. You either present yourself to God and your members as slaves of righteousness leading to holiness or you present yourself 
as a slave to lawlessness and purity, which leads to further lawlessness. There's no middle road where you can dabble in one or the other. And it's, it's, this, is, this is the principle or law that governs all of fallen creation. And you and I have to see that sin is on that pathway away from God that leads to death. So grace would never point us in that direction. Grace would never say, hey, enjoy it because God forgives. Enjoy it because you need to have as much pleasure as you can because God wants you to be happy. I mean, when you hear that, you should hear, because that's the serpent. That's Satan whispering in the ear of Adam and Eve, oh, hey, this is good to eat, and you'll be happy. You'll be like God. As he marches them to the executioner block, God actually promises freedom through submission to him. That's why it's grace. God says, I made you. I know how this thing works. I know what the outcome of this is. And I have promised to you life. But you need to take my yoke upon you and learn of me. You need to become obedient from the heart to the form of teaching that has been entrusted to you. You need to follow Christ. Grace produces righteousness. Sin leads to death. And ultimately, the fruit reveals what's at the root of it. And you know, on this weekend, right, it's timely, I think, to see in the midst of Paul's powerful argument for why we shouldn't serve sin is how effortlessly Paul moved to thanksgiving. Because the core for Paul of the creature's relationship to the Creator is wrapped around this heart of gratitude. All the way back in chapter 1, he said, We knew God. We did not honor Him as God. Neither were thankful. Right? We started to say about God's creation, this is mine, and I want to get mine, and I want what I deserve. I want what belongs to me. I am the source of, of rules and regulations and rewards. If I'm going to give thanks, I may like toss one up, but I really, I really would stand in front of the mirror and say, look what I did. Look what I did. And the gospel comes along and it humbles us to recognize that we are to praise God from whom all blessings flow. So when Paul thinks about what happened in the life of these Roman believers, the radical change from slaves of sin to be obedient from the heart and slaves of righteousness, his first thought is, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Because he is the one who saves he is the one 
And the teaching that he's talking about here explodes the lie of Satan that real life is found out from under God's authority. Because that's the lie. Step out from under God's authority and you'll be able to have real life. You'll be able to enjoy it. You'll be able to be free from all the shackles of that ogre who wants to rule your life. Just step out and live your own way and you will be free. That's what Satan says. And he's got his handcuffs right behind his back for the moment you step through that door. He's going to shackle you as a slave of sin. The only real freedom is when you say, I bow my knee to the Lord Christ. I confess him and accept from him all the blessings he's promised to those who confess him as Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. It's a choice between death and life, between real freedom as a slave of righteousness or the false promise of freedom as a slave of sin. That's the choice that Paul sets before us. Let's pray. Father, we want to give thanks to you this morning for the power of the work of Jesus Christ and the good news that's come to us through him. That you break the power of canceled sin. The, the debt's paid, the penalty is removed, but also the power of that sin has been broken so that we can become a slave of righteousness resulting in sanctification. So Lord, work in our hearts so that we see clearly the differences here. We comprehend with clarity what it means to have become obedient from the heart to the teaching that has been given to us. Lord, we pray that you would give us hearts that are full of gratitude at the salvation that you provide in Christ. If we have experienced it, we have been born again, may we rejoice in it. May we find great comfort and encouragement that you have made us yours. You've set us free. We are yours. And Lord, we pray that you would open eyes this morning of any who are still in bondage to sin, that they might see that they cannot set themselves free. They cannot break that power. They cannot pay that penalty. But Jesus Christ can and will, if they will call on his name, confess him as Lord. Amen. Father, we thank you. We praise you today that you are our salvation. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.